This is the Beyond the Studio podcast, and you're listening to Season 3, Beyond the Studio East Coast Edition. I'm Amanda Adams. And I'm Nicole Muller, and we're here to help you figure out the business of being an artist. Here we'll have honest conversations with artists, makers, and business experts, and dive deep into the work that happens beyond the studio. If you find value in listening to these conversations, please consider leaving us a rating and a review or sharing some of your favorite episodes with your creative community. It's the easiest way to show us some love and help others find the podcast. Thanks so much for listening. Before we get started with today's episode, I just wanted to drop in, in case you didn't notice, this is part one of the conversation. So be sure to tune in next week to listen to part two. We do this whenever an episode goes kind of long, rather than give you a super long episode, we break it into two halves. So half one is today, part two is next week. Hey, it's Amanda. I want to tell you about Change Lab, a long-form interview podcast that explores the transformative power of creativity. Hosted by Lauren M. Buffman, the show is produced by Art Center College of Design, a global leader in art and design education. Change Lab tells extraordinary true stories about regular people living their life through the lens of creativity, the kind you won't see on the news or read about online. Change Lab guests are artists, designers, and entrepreneurs from diverse sectors, including popular culture, high art, Silicon Valley, corporate America, and the emerging fields of social innovation. ChangeLab just began its seventh season, which is dedicated to amplifying Black voices in a conversation around creating concrete, measurable action towards a more diverse and inclusive art and design community at Art Center and beyond. The world is one giant nation of creatives. Change Lab's objective is to shine a spotlight on the little and big dreams that comprise the artistic life of people who can't help but make something where before there was nothing. Subscribe, listen, and enjoy Change Lab wherever you listen to podcasts. On today's episode of Beyond the Studio, we are interviewing artist, educator, designer, and uh, just embroidery extraordinaire, Sarah K. Benning of Keene, New Hampshire, and also my friend. Thank you so much for coming on to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I know um, we've been talking about this for quite some time, and mm-hmm. I'm I'm really happy that things aligned and that I can be here chatting with you both today. Yeah, me too. I I guess for a little bit of backstory for listeners that have, well, no one's been present for our hangouts but us. But every time we've hung out and talked about art, I just feel so inspired. And I always wish that I had had a recording of those conversations because you're so free with information and, and really open to talk about the things that a lot of people are not willing to talk about with their art businesses. So I'm so glad that we finally got to have you on the show and that we can talk all about that. Yeah, I so I love talking about art and business and where they intersect for me. And I joke a lot that over the years, Google has just kind of become my best friend because I turn <laughs> to Google searches to figure out all the things. So if I can offer anyone any little piece of what I have gleaned from hours of Googling like entire paragraphs, I'm happy to share. In addition to sharing whatever, you know, experience I've gained through actually just doing things. But but yeah, I'm I'm always happy to talk about uh, my studio practice, which right now, despite COVID, doesn't actually look that different from 
the way it normally does. I am an embroidery artist uh, and I've sort of set my business and studio up to be very home based. So I've always worked from home and my work is pretty small and portable. So I just kind of move it from room to room, wherever the sun is. (laughs) And I've been doing this for the past seven years now, which feels really wild. Sometimes I have to kind of remind myself like that I've got it. I've kind of figured out some things that work for me and it's okay. And it's not this sort of constant scramble anymore to a degree. And that's, you know, a nice place to recognize a nice stage to be in with the business side. Obviously on the art side, things are always evolving and changing and hopefully kind of expanding and growing. But yeah. How did you come into embroidery? I'm curious how you got started on this um, creative career back. I know your background is also in art. So how did you find yourself um, on this on this trajectory? Yeah, sort of randomly. <laughs> I never ever could have predicted that embroidery would have been my chosen medium. I grew up in Baltimore and had the good fortune of attending Baltimore School for the Arts for high school. Um, I knew from a really young age I wanted to pursue art, and luckily my mom and other caregivers were totally supportive and on board with that. And from BSA, I went to SAIC, the School of the Art Institute of Chicago, for my undergraduate degree. And that uh, school is set up to be very interdisciplinary and um, you never have to declare a major so you can kind of take classes in whatever department you want and kind of really explore different materials and different ideas and I found myself kind of concentrating my time in the fibers studio and in arts administration classes and post-college well then I did a really intense year-long project cataloging every single thing that I owned in my Chicago studio apartment and I illustrated them and did this massive really uh, involved installation for my senior show for my BFA show and after that I was like okay I'm gonna wipe my hands clean of art I'm done that was it (laughs) that was like the pinnacle of of me as a serious artist and after graduation I left the city like the next day didn't tell anyone just moved Mm -hmm. back across the country to upstate New York where my boyfriend at the time now husband and business partner uh, was finishing up his degree I took a job as a nanny and I found my way to stitching at that point just as a creative hobby that would keep my hands busy and kind of keep some side of my creative brain busy, but without kind of the self-imposed pressures of making fine art. And kind of in my head at the time, like embroidery was outside of that space. And so it didn't kind of carry the weight of, of being serious and being real art. Over the years, those lines have kind of blurred and those distinctions have pretty much disappeared for me between like fine art and craft and business and commercial stuff. And it's all kind of, it all just pieces together to be what my studio practice is. It's funny how many artists we talk to that have a similar story where, you know, maybe they, they didn't expect themselves to, you know, to go down this creative career path or they have been really immersed in art, but they, you know, eventually end up turning some, 
some, you know, side hobby or um, something that maybe wasn't and didn't seem like an important part of their creative practice into the primary thing at some later point. So it's always interesting to hear how you got into that mode of making and how you kind of landed on, you know, on embroidery as your chosen medium. Yeah, well, I instantly fell in love with it. Even as a student in college, I had worked with thread and stitching in different ways, but I made several pieces on paper, kind of large scale abstract pieces that were just about kind of accumulations of marks, some stitched, some drawn, some counted, some over specific periods of time. It was like very, very art school kind of conceptual work. Uh, And when I left school and kind of relocated. I didn't really have, our apartment was pretty small. And so I, instead of making large scale paperworks, I transitioned into making really small, one of a kind greeting cards, just again, kind of for fun. And a lot of those cards I was stitching onto. And at a certain point, I was just amassing a pile of work, stitched artworks and stitched cards and I was just having so much fun making it. And I reached a point where I was giving it away to friends and family and it kind of got to the degree of like, okay, we really appreciate you and what you're making, but like, we have enough of it. <laughs> Maybe hang on to it <laughs> for a bit. <laughs> and that's when I opened an Etsy shop and kind of just threw my hat into the ring of trying to self-promote and, and sell my own creative output. And it kind of just went from there and and grew really organically. I was lucky to uh, have gotten on Etsy at a particular time. Uh, The site has changed a lot since then. That was in like the summer of 2013. So it was before, well before Etsy went public and their homepage changed. And so back then they had an hourly rotating homepage of kind of community curated objects and and products and my cards and small artworks started to find their way onto that homepage pretty regularly which really kind of brought in a lot of sales and grew kind of a small but loyal customer base and and after about a year and a half I was able to transition I I left By that point, I'd left my nannying job. I was working at Whole Foods and it took about a year and a half and I was able to transfer, like leave Whole Foods and just dedicate myself to my artwork full time. And as the interest in my work grew, uh, my my love for the craft really grew and, and it just was this really wonderful sort of marriage between really enjoying it and having other people enjoy it enough to spend money on it. So yeah, so it it's all kind of just come together over time in an unexpected but very appreciated kind of way. Yeah, and as you were starting to see some more organic growth through your Etsy shop, were you thinking at the time that you eventually wanted to to turn this into something that you would be working on full time? Or was that also you know, more of an adapted mindset as, as things just grew organically? Yeah, it definitely just happened. It reached a point where I was working a full 40-hour work week at my job, and I was putting in kind of similar hours at home, making 
the stitched goods that I was making and managing the Etsy shop, you know, responding to questions, packing and shipping orders, doing all the photography and item descriptions and all of that. And I kind of just hit a breaking point where it was like something has to give. I can't work 80 hours a week (laughs) anymore. Mm -hmm. And so the first week that I made more sales on Etsy than I brought home in my paycheck, I put in my notice and quit my job, which I was 23 and my rent was $300 and I had a car that was paid off and my mom, I was still on my mom's health insurance. So it was like a really easy decision at that point for me to take the leap into creative self-employment. And I also left my day job on good terms. So it felt like if this doesn't work out after a few months, I can, I can go back. And I just, I, you know, sometimes I catch myself still in that mindset where it's like, well, any day this could end and then I'll just have to find another thing, get a, get a regular job and that'll be fine. Which I don't think that's really realistic anymore because I've never actually had a, a real job and, and things are beyond me. I just have gotten involved with a local organization and we're using this app for all the communication and organizing. And oh my gosh, it's so over my head. I'm like so out of date with technology and and like a formal setting. So <laughs> probably this works out long term. <laughs> but but yeah, back to your question. It really deciding to do my art for a living was not the intention from the beginning. That kind of just emerged as a possibility as time went on. And now now it's not only my full-time job, but my husband also works full-time with me. So it's a family operation at this point. Yeah, thank you for giving us that breakdown. I feel like it's really easy to see other people like artists and see them making the jump going into full time and being like, oh, okay, whatever worked for them will work for me. But it really is very much a personal decision. And there are so many sets of personal circumstances that can make it possible. And sometimes we're sort of like forced into it because of work situations. And sometimes it is a matter of like, I'm overwhelmed with my workload. And if this can match what I'm making elsewhere, then maybe I have the potential to make more doing this. But also those circumstances of like having low rent makes such a big difference. And I know those were definitely factors in in my experience as well. Like having a good support system and, and having low overhead can make such a huge difference to be able to take that leap. Yeah, absolutely. And I think I think embroidery as a medium kind of contributed that to that as well because it is a very kind of cost effective craft and the supplies are not only inexpensive but also readily available. You know, for example, like a skein of embroidery floss back then it was cheaper. Now it's like between 55 and 70 cents for a whole thing of thread. And a hoop is maybe one or $2, depending on where you get it. And I use mostly found and recycled and sort of gifted hand-me-down fabrics. So that's essentially no cost. And for me coming out of college and, you know, working at, I worked for $10 an hour at my nannying job that was really important, the sort of accessible, cheap materials. And I had lots of friends that in college were in ceramics or needed big floor looms to make their work or took a lot of foundry classes and were dealing with metal and things that they really had a hard time figuring out how to 
kind of adapt in the post-school world where they didn't have access whenever they wanted it to specialized equipment and specialized studio tools and, and stuff like that. So yeah, I think circumstances, they're all different for everyone and they play a huge part in the way careers develop and opportunities present themselves. Not that you can't figure it out if you, you know, are doing metal work in college and want to continue it. You totally can figure that out. It's just going to take more problem solving, I think, than going out to Joanne Fabrics and getting an embroidery hoop. Yeah, for sure. And it's especially relevant now, you know, as we're recording this in 2020, when so many people don't have access to studios and, and different types of equipment where they could do more... I guess a a more broad range of different types of art. And so many of us are limited to like, what can I do in my home? What can I do in this space? What can I do on my limited budget? And we, I mean, we, Nicole and I just had a conversation the other day with a ceramics artist who was like, okay, I use a shared studio. Now there's COVID. How am I supposed to get, (laughs) how am I supposed to make work now? And they managed to create a situation in their bathroom, which is amazing. But, you know, still had to be able to get to the studio to access the kiln to be able to fire the work, which still involves overhead and and access. Yeah. Yeah. I've been thinking, you know, since the start of the pandemic and and before that, too, um, but especially this year with the pandemic and also the uprisings, I've been thinking a lot about sort of the privileges that I've had in my life that have shaped and guided my career. And like, there are so, so many. um, And so many of them have to do with having support in my life and, and having had support in my life. One, just emotional support in pursuing art and not, you know, being laughed at, like that was a crazy idea. And two, you know, having financial support I was really, really fortunate to be able to graduate from college without student debt, partially through scholarship and partially through a benefit from my mom's job and partially through family help paying sort of living expenses. And had I not been able to do that, I wouldn't have been able to sort of launch into this embroidery business a year and a half out of school because I would have had to devote a lot more of my problem-solving energy to just dealing with all of those other bills to, you know, paying student loans. My partner has student loans, but we've, you know, been able to manage that fine. But, and, and also just knowing that taking the leap into creative self-employment, if I did fail and came up short on rent, I knew that I could, you know, ask my mom to help me out for a month or two months or whatever. And, and I knew that she was in a position to be able to do that should I ever need it. And I, I haven't had to do that even in the beginning, but I think that there's an, an enormous amount of confidence that comes with knowing you have those support systems. And that alone is like such kind of a high dive jumping off point for everything else. So I, yeah, I don't know. Sometimes, you know, I read articles or advice that are just like, anybody can do that, like five steps to building an audience, five steps to being self-employed or whatever. And it's just, I think those conversations are really whittled down and lacking a lot of nuance. Obviously five steps to anything is like really simple, but yeah, I don't know, just a lot of self-reflection lately on, 
on how I've gotten to where I've gotten and what parts of my success are coming from my own hard work and what parts um, have really been gifted to me through other circumstances. Yeah, I I appreciate you sharing that because I think, I mean, if we've learned anything from talking with so many artists through the podcast, it's that, you know, every creative career path is is so individualized, right? So even even hearing that, you know, here are the the five to 10 steps that I took in order to realize this project or, you know, this particular thing, it doesn't, it doesn't always translate. um, And and it's not always possible to to replicate. And, you know, part of that, I think, is the nature of the creative career being something that you're sort of inventing as you go. But then part of it, I think, too, is is all these other layers that you're talking about, you know, um, so much depends on on circumstance, on privilege, on support, on opportunity, and and even I think you know location is is one of those factors that we were wanting to kind of address through this East Coast edition and starting to do these more regional breakdowns um, to you know talk about how how that plays a role. But but I, yeah, I appreciate you acknowledging that because I think there's so much that goes into you know ev- everyone's life story and. It's obviously so so personalized. You know, we're we're talking about what it is to build a creative life and career through the lens of individual artists, but there's so many other just societal and you know family layers to that that really um, can help to you know to make or break someone's success. Yeah, yeah, totally. I think, like you said, location is a big one, and I think. Traditionally, the thought has been like, well, if you want to have a career in a creative field, whether it's in some kind of performance space or as an artist, you've, you've got to go be in a city. You know, you need to be in L.A. or in New York or maybe in Chicago, somewhere populated and dense. And that's where the opportunities are. And I think more and more over the years, that feels less and less true. I'm sure that there are lots of opportunities in those cities that you know, are still specific to location, but particularly now during this time, you know, we're all at home. I live in Keene, New Hampshire, which this is another sort of aspect of my life. I never could have predicted having grown up in Baltimore. I was like, I am in the city forever. Like I can't imagine living some in a town or like in the suburbs or something like that. And, and here I am in like small town, New Hampshire, actually, Around here, Keene is considered a really big town, (laughs) which is hilarious to me because it it does still feel very small to me and very quaint. But we ended up out here because, because I've been able to use the internet in such a way to build my business so that it isn't really grounded in specific place. We have kind of this global network of people supporting my work and following my work and buying my work. And so for us, we, when we decided to kind of pick a place to live after having been more or less nomadic for a number of years, we wanted a place where we'd have space to live and work comfortably. And we just, we couldn't afford to do that in a city. So we ended up finding my dream house. Davey's on board, but it's definitely my, um, we went to, to see our house for fun and I stepped in and Davey was just like, oh God, this is, all right, I guess we're doing this now. But, um, but, but being here for a couple of years, it has been really interesting because even in small places, you don't, 
think about the way that there might be fewer local opportunities, but there's also less local competition for those opportunities. And my studio and my work is not based in kind of specific commissions so much, but I've definitely made friends who do a lot of freelance work and, and sort of setting up shop in small spots, they get all the jobs, all the jobs that there are in their smaller local situation, they're getting them because there aren't people with the same skills, you know, competing for those same jobs in the same place. So I think that, you know, smaller places kind of outside of cultural hubs get overlooked a lot in the conversation around being a working artist, but I don't think they have to be. They're just kind of different (laughs) and less exciting, maybe. There's definitely less stuff to do, but there's still work to be found. Yeah, I'm so glad you said that too, because I think this time has a lot of people reevaluating where they're based or where where they live, you know, in this time of remote work, especially. And I know my partner and I have had these conversations. We live in San Francisco right now, which is an extremely expensive city. You know, both of our jobs were or are here, but we've just been working out of our apartment. So it definitely, you know, begs the question, well, if we could be really working from anywhere, then you know, what are the benefits of living in the heart of a really expensive city? So I, I, and I actually already have seen a lot of people that have kind of left or that they've maybe haven't, are looking at, you know, whether or not to renew a lease or something like that. And so I do think we're here to stay for a little bit, but I, I completely understand you rethinking that, especially if maybe you're not so rooted or, or maybe there is the possibility you could continue working remotely even beyond the pandemic and, and in your case, that your your work isn't rooted to that location either, just the ability to be mobile seems really great. And um, it, it does open up a lot more possibilities, um, potentially. So I'm kind of curious to see. I think we we're also just talking with another artist about what maybe what, what's going to happen in real estate through all of this. You know, are we going to see a lot more spreading out without these concentrations of like work within, you know, these city centers? But we'll see what happens. But I'm, I'm just, I love hearing that story of how, how you found yourself, where you are, and how location has played a role in your, your own work and life, and, and just the lifestyle even, like being able to spread out and kind of live the life that you want to live. Yeah, well, we've been lucky that we've gotten to try a few different things out. <laughs> we met while I was a student in Chicago, and so obviously Chicago is a big, bustling city, and that, you know, we both look back really fondly on that time in our lives. And I think we look back less fondly of our time in Albany, but Albany is where I started my business. Um, That's where our rent was $300. That's where, you know, downsizing to a smaller city opened up some doors in a way that I wouldn't have expected because the cost of living was much more manageable. And if I had stayed in Chicago, I can't really imagine what I would be doing now. I mean, I'm, I'm sure I would still be doing some kind of artwork, but I think early on so much more of my time would have been, I would have had to dedicate so much more of my time and energy to just surviving in the city rather than investing time and energy into a studio practice. And yeah, and then we went, we ended up living in an 800 person town in New Hampshire for not even a year. That ultra rural northern wilderness life definitely defeated us and we 
we broke our lease on the little cottage we were renting and and moved a little bit further south. I never ever want to be physically snowed into a building again. It was it was, you know, an opportunity to learn something that didn't work for us as well. I think it's fun to imagine mm-hmm. that kind of like romantic homesteading lifestyle just in a cottage in the woods uh, with a flourishing garden and like nature around you. And then we got out there and we're not great gardeners and there were no other people. And it took us 40 minutes to drive to the store, like an mm. hour and a half in the winter if the roads were bad. We basically were living COVID lifestyle back then, <laughs> shopping for like three weeks at a time and never seeing other humans. Yeah. <laughs> it was hard. <laughs> and we moved we moved into, you know, the town where we are now to get away from that isolation. So And now look at you. Back <laughs> <Yeah>. in it. <laughs> Couldn't escape it. At least we've had some practice. <laughs> yeah. Um, this is a little bit of a shift and I'm thinking about the last time that we talked, I feel like we were talking about a lot of plans for like in-person opportunities yeah. and in <laughs> in before times you were doing so many workshops and uh, teaching opportunities and obviously that is is different right now. I'm curious how how you're shifting with that and kind of I mean we can still talk about in-person opportunities for hopeful future times but yeah I guess that's not even like a proper question but um. oh, yeah so <laughs> So I did teach a lot of workshops. I think at sort of the peak of workshop time for me, I was doing about one sort of city a month. But within that weekend, maybe I was teaching two to four workshops. And that started back in 2016. At the time, I was living in Menorca, Spain. And a friend of ours who runs this really wonderful craft teaching space in Barcelona asked if I'd like to teach a workshop. I was like, I don't know about this. I'm not a teacher. I also don't, like, I couldn't teach in Spanish. And back when we were there, there was a lot of people in Barcelona and in Catalonia were really wanting to speak in Catalan exclusively. So I was like, I definitely can't do that. But I went ahead with the workshop anyway. And it was a really wonderful experience. And it was a great way to kind of diversify my income opportunities and add kind of another branch to my studio practice where I was already selling original work and I was writing digital patterns, which have a teaching component, although not a sort of real-time face-to-face kind of experience. So it was a really fun way to, to sort of expand and build upon my pattern program and also just to meet people face-to-face. Uh, there's something really magical about being in a room full of people who are just as excited about embroidery as I am because it's a really specific kind of realm. And it was also a really great way to sort of travel and uh, see different places and visit different places and, you know, to get into the nitty gritty of business, expense those trips for work. Um, Mm -hmm. And so, of course, we're not doing that now. I canceled. I I did have workshops scheduled for this year. They have been canceled. We had to cancel a trip to Japan and Singapore. Mm -hmm. And, and I don't know when I'll feel comfortable, you know, I mean, there's no way to predict when things will be safe again. 
So I haven't really adapted on that front. I know tons of folks have been so good at like transitioning and just jumping into video workshops, like whether it's live kind of workshop events over Zoom or whatever, or just producing like video content, you know, a workshop, but maybe it's not live. It's just something that you're hosting and selling. I am so intensely uncomfortable in front of the camera that I haven't worked myself up to that yet. (laughs) Quite honestly, I think things will have to get really desperate for me financially before I put out a video workshop (laughs) in any form. So if you see that from me, you know, (laughs) things are bad over here. Um, Send send some money to her Venmo, throw some cash (laughs) app, (laughs) get some patterns. (laughs) Yeah. You know, I think as I've gone on and sort of navigated being an artist and being a business person, I've gotten better at recognizing the areas that I can do a really good job in and recognizing the areas where I'm just not going to be able to provide an experience that I think is is really going to be great and valuable to the people participating. And so I don't, I'm not really in a hurry to do video because I just don't think I'm set up to do it very well. And So I don't know. I haven't really adapted on the workshop front. It's kind of just a branch of my studio practice that's been pruned (laughs) for now. And I think that's perfectly fair and valid. Like, I think a lot of times we see other people showing up really successfully in certain spheres and you feel the pressure like, oh, I need to be showing up there too. Like, if I'm on social media, I should be on all of them. If, If other people are transitioning to online workshops, I should be running those too. But ultimately... We have to make the best decisions for ourselves. I mean, there are so many, there are so many things that I cannot and will not do because they just, they push me in a direction that I don't feel comfortable in or, or doesn't make, you know, feel appropriate to my work. And we all just have to kind of put it through our own lens of what's the right fit for ourselves. I'm curious to know what the breakdown is between the different different facets of your your work and business um, because you you offer uh, or have offered workshops. Um, of course, you have original embroideries. Uh, you mentioned digital patterns, and I know you also sell kits. And so, I'm curious what the breakdown of all those things is, um, and then maybe also what's the ratio between. Um, some of the more passive income streams versus um, things that are a little bit more labor intensive for you up front? Yeah. So when I first started out, I was making, actually, when I really first started out, I was making kind of of one-of-a-kind things, but I would make them to order. So each one wasn't coming from a really specific pattern, but the design was kind of the same, just with like the quirks of it being handmade each time. And that model didn't work very well for me. So I switched to just making one-of-a-kind original embroideries and selling those. The problem was that my work was extremely underpriced for the labor cost that goes that went into it. I think I have pretty high prices when it comes to embroidery now, but to be entirely honest, that labor cost is still not being fully met by the you know, the price tag on on my work, even though those prices have, have gone up significantly over the years. Embroidery is just really slow and there's nothing I can do to make that faster, at least in the way that I, in the style that I'm working. So my digital patterns, which I introduced in 2016, really stemmed from a desire to not be 
a one person sweatshop where I had to be stitching every second of my waking day. I mean, I say that now as we're talking and I do have embroidery (laughs) in my hands, um, but I could put it down if I wanted to. (laughs) Uh, there was a, there was a point earlier on where that really wasn't an option. I would wake up and I would stitch and Davey and I would eat meals and I'd go back to stitching and we'd watch a movie in the evening, but I'd be stitching the whole time. And so the digital patterns were an experiment to see if I could create some more passive income that would kind of be that financial stability that would allow me to to slow down a little bit in the production of the original works. When the first pattern launched in 2016, it took me about two weeks to put that first pattern together, designing it and stitching samples and figuring out how to write the instructions and doing all the photography and everything. I can now design a pattern in a crunch in two days and have it ready to be online. It's not an enjoyable two days, but it has really kind of, I've gotten much more efficient with that. And the pattern program has really become, it really has become a financial backbone to my studio. I took a break from July through December of last year, and I didn't put out new patterns during that period. And by the end of the year, my accountant was just like, what are you doing? Like you, you've got to figure something else out because like right now you're not on a sustainable road, which I kept just being like, no, no, it's fine. I need this break. The pattern program, like the digital material will come back. It'll be better and than it's ever been before, but I've got to recharge. And even if that means like we're operating in a, in a really lean kind of way, to me, that was really necessary uh, to, to be inspired again. And it also allowed that time where I wasn't producing a new pattern design every single month. It allowed me to sort of develop my kits a little bit more. I've had kits on and off for the past maybe four years, but it wasn't until last September that I really concentrated on some package design and and really improved the materials that were going into the kits and the way that I was instructing people within the kits and what the whole kind of experience was for for the people buying them. So, and that, that's been really fun. And especially now with so many people at home, you know, needing activities, um, I'm, I've been really glad. Actually, we've been sold out of kits since April because we can't get supplies to restock, but, but I was really glad we had them back then when people were really wanting them. So as for kind of the way all of that shakes out, the, Digital patterns, which are the most passive, create the stability month to month for us. And then periodically I do big re-releases of all my past designs. And if I do that really successfully, those re-releases kind of essentially fund the studio for a month or two, uh, which then gives me time back to create the artwork and kind of do experimental work that if those if those pieces fail, it's not a loss because I'm not relying on every single thing that I make to, you know, go out into the world and be returned to me in money, <laughs> which is really an important balance to strike just for me creatively. And then the kits are a product. At this point, my partner is really sort of the kit king and <laughs> handles most of that. Um, so he's the one kind of 
ordering materials and doing the assembly. And he does most of our packaging and shipping and all of that, which again is a way that I can sort of reclaim some time and energy to just design and create artwork. But if I, in an imaginary world where money wasn't an issue, I would be creating like gigantic wall-sized embroideries that I could work on for like 10 years at a time. Wow, yeah, that would be pretty incredible to see. I can only imagine how much time is invested into into each piece. And you sort of answered this, but I was curious to know what kinds of shifts you might have seen this year, um, because I know for some other makers who who do things like wholesale as a part of their business, that has really shifted. Um, I'm sure Amanda can speak to that too, but I know that for you, Sarah, yeah, um, yeah just with how labor intensive the embroidery is, um, that's not something that you offer typically. So I was curious if you were seeing any shifts in, um, you know, in your, your business um, since the start of COVID. Yeah. Um, well, so I definitely don't do wholesale. I used to, mm-hmm. but you used to do wholesale. <laughs> yeah. What what did you wholesale? Oh my gosh, I wholes- I would sell embroidery hoops wholesale. It was terrible. No. I had no clue what I was doing. Numbers didn't mean anything to me. So I finally did some math and was just like, what what am I doing? <laughs> this isn't gonna work. But yeah, so since COVID has happened, I feel Like, I feel really fortunate that we live where we live and that our life was already kind of set up in the way that it was set up because Mm -hmm. in my day to day, I haven't actually really experienced a lot of changes. I already worked from home. I am a, you know, don't like go out that much anyway. And as far as our business goes, we had ordered what we had projected for this year what we were going to do in terms of kits and workshops and all of that at the end of last year. So we were really lucky that we had already placed right at the end of last year with kind of the little bit of like profit that we had. We just reinvested it in materials for this year. And that meant that, you know, when March happened and everything shut down, we were supposed to be getting ready to go to Japan and to Singapore. Instead, we basically took the two weeks we were going to be traveling and created to put together 200 kits, which was going to be the kit stock that we were going to have for the whole year, because it's not necessarily normally like a huge part of our business. Mm-hmm. Well, that run of 200 kits sold out. We, we sent a link to our mailing list and it sold out in a week, wow. which you know, was amazing. Like I, we were just so incredibly grateful for that kind of support. Um, especially when there was just, there still is, I mean, there's just so much uncertainty right now. Mm -hmm. And, and then we had a moment of sort of celebration and then it was like, Oh my God, we have to package and ship 200 things. Like right now we never, we don't deal with numbers like that really ever. Did you even have enough boxes on hand? So luckily we did, but it just, it all came out to like massive amounts of luck. And Davey was kind of, we have like an attic space that right now is just a box hoarding zones because we do send stuff in recycled packaging when we can. So Davey was getting really creative with, with kind of (laughs) building boxes out of (laughs) that area. But yeah, since then, you know, that unexpected 
sell through of all of our kits. We, we reordered supplies in April and I'm still waiting for some of them. Oh my God. And for context, we're having this conversation in the beginning of August. Yeah. So that's, that's a lot. So now we're kind of sending these messages out to our suppliers, just like begging in the most polite, understanding way possible that we get at least an update or an idea of when we'll get these things in. Cause now it's kind of like, well, are we going to even be able to be prepared for a holiday season? Because even once we get all of the supplies in, it does take us time. It's just Davy and I doing all the assembly. So it does, you know, take time to put together all the components and, you know, make each little package cute and all of that. So yeah, so that part has been weird. Um, and I can feel that we're or maybe, maybe this isn't true. I hope it's not true, but it feels like every time somebody emails being like, oh, I really love, I found my way to your website and I really love what you're doing. You know, do you ever plan on restocking your kits? And it's like, oh my gosh, yes, we do. We of course plan on restocking our kits. And as soon as we can, like we will, we will let the world know. Um, But so much is out of our control, which is not even to get into the USPS issues right now, where even if we had all the supplies and all the kits, if you bought one, who knows if you'd get it. So, so that all has been really stressful, of course. Um, but I, I do think that we, the nature of our business, I don't know, we just have so much to be grateful for right now because we haven't been impacted in such drastic ways that so many other people have been. So we're very lucky and we're just trying to get through all of it and kind of keep up the best spirits possible and stay in communication with our community and clients. And and I think everybody's just kind of like doing the best they can right now. And our experience has been sort of this overwhelming amount of support and like extra kindness from our community. Not even, not even like necessarily buying things, but it just does seem like a lot of people are just being a little extra nice to each other in some place, in some settings. <laughs> yeah, I know I definitely feel that a little bit when it comes to how receptive and understanding customers are right now. Like everyone seems to, to be on the same page, understanding that like mail is going to take as long as it's going to take um, and kind of the more basic things like that but you know then of course you're in the grocery store and you're like wow you're really screaming at that person trying to help you huh okay yeah (laughs) right so that's the other side and and there's no excuse for that kind of behavior towards towards anybody but especially right now towards people that are providing services that we all need and it's wild to me the kind of disrespect and misplaced anger and fear that is happening everywhere so yeah, that needs to stop. And and we've experienced a very, very small amount of that as well, where people, you know, when we get messages from frustrated folks, I can understand that, that they're angry and upset and scared about a lot of other things. And I'm just the recipient of that in this moment. And to, to me, it's on email. It's not somebody screaming in my face. So it's easy to just like take a breath and know that it's not about me and move on. But yeah, it's a hard year for so many reasons and so many people. And I don't even know what else to yeah. say about that. 
It's a very mature response to recognize that it's it's not about <laughs> not about me personally. It's just, you know, whatever else that they're probably going through that maybe is causing this reaction. <laughs> but it's it's interesting to hear you talk to about some of the shifts that you've seen this year because it seems like you're also at a point where you have been able to build a really sustainable business so that you have these different income streams or different facets of of Um, your work that you can kind of lean into Um, and I feel like we've heard that from other artists a little bit too that whether it's just how they're spending their time or you know where their income is coming from but it does seem like that's one of the things and we talk about this a lot just you know the importance of developing multiple income streams this is kind of rewinding in time a little bit but I'm also um, interested to know as you had started to grow your business what were some of the either some of the challenges or just things that you were learning as you were kind of scaling this uh, for for lack of a better word maybe on on the business end or you know how are you starting to to grow this um, and you know what have been some of the major major pain points or like growing pains that you've experienced along the way yeah so I want to preface this by saying that I am by no stretch of the imagination like a real business person or someone who has it together (laughs) in case it ever comes across like I know what I'm talking about I definitely don't I think I said it earlier in this conversation that in the beginning my prices were were just made up like they didn't relate to anything Uh, they were just numbers that I felt like seemed appropriate but the numbers weren't based in any kind of reality so that was kind of a learning process that I think took me a really long time. Um, And I don't even know that I've totally kind of come out of that process. But, you know, just realizing the very first thing that I sold on Etsy was a hand-stitched one-of-a-kind greeting card to someone in New Zealand. Well, the first thing I ever sold was to my mom. But the first, like, real sale to a stranger (laughs) was to this woman in New Zealand. Um, I had forgotten to set shipping rates on my Etsy shop, so she didn't pay for shipping, and the card was priced at $6. So the card probably took me three hours to make, like, from start to finish, and, you know, involved physical materials, paper, an envelope, thread, and then international shipping. So I lost money and time on that first sale, and and you would think that I'd have like gotten it after that one experience. But the the only takeaway I had at that point was like, oh, I've got to charge for shipping. Not, oh, it's unreasonable for me to pay myself $2 an hour. <laughs> and so I think that's been, you know, f- sort of finding ways to mathematically figure out what my costs are, including labor, and then finding the confidence to really ask for those prices has been an uphill struggle from the beginning. And I know there might be people out there who are familiar with my work and maybe familiar with where my originals are priced now. And they might be thinking like, okay, come on, you're selling some pieces for like multiple thousands of dollars. You clearly are making money on that. And it's like, well, that piece that I maybe sold for $2,000, I worked on for a year. So Mm -hmm. I'm like, 
I'm not saying I'm disappointed that I sold it for the price that I sold it. I'm in control of putting that number on it, but there there's still, you know, room for me to assess how my time is valued in the end price of what it is that I'm offering. So that's like, I think, and I'm not, I know I'm not alone in struggling with pricing creative work. Like that is a whole thing. I was going to say, I think a lot of artists struggle with that. Um, Same. (laughs) Yeah. Just knowing how how to, how to price our work, I think. And, and the, the tendency to, to underprice, um, honestly, I think is something that a lot of artists struggle with as well. So I am curious, how, how did you start to, you know, build more of a strategy around how, how you were pricing your work? It sounds like, um, obviously, time, materials, labor um, are things that you started to track more consistently and to factor that in. Um, are there other things that you found were helpful in determining, you know, the best price point for your work? Yeah, so I reached a point where I had a pretty significant following on Instagram, my Etsy shop had kind of established itself on that platform as kind of a like trustworthy place where people were buying things. And so when I would release collections of work, they were selling out almost instantly, like within a few minutes, which is really not like the first time it felt really spectacular. And it was like, whoa, like everybody is into this. And then it was like, wow, I spent, you know, three months building this collection and now it's sold out and now I'm getting angry emails from people because they didn't get what they wanted and it's going to take me another three months to like restock and I didn't actually make enough money to support myself for three months to restock the shop. So I think I just sort of expressed some of that on Instagram and this the occasion I'm thinking of was back in 2016 and this really amazingly generous artist who works with embroidery as well, Casey Zavaglia, DM'd me and was just like, you need to raise your prices. (laughs) Like you are, I can tell that you're feeling totally overwhelmed and burnt out and tired. And I saw your stuff sell out. And that means that like, that you're underpriced, that the demand is, is greater than what you are able to supply and you need to do yourself a favor and make that adjustment. And she sent me a series of talks, which now I I've been racking my brain for what they were, but I believe they were like video, not classes, but like lectures from NYU. And one of the ones she sent was about pricing and they were speaking to a very successful artist that, you know, sells work for tens of thousands of dollars and kind of breaking down what that meant. And if he's putting together a single show for a year, sort of starting backwards, like how much money or like, how does that all shake out? And in traditional gallery setting, he's only going to take home 50% of the sales. So he's got to mark, like price the work to cover a year of labor. And remember that he only gets 50% of the price. And I don't know, just kind of working backwards from that really large scale kind of idea. And that's kind of how I still do it now where I think about, I know what my kind of break-even number for the studio is month to month. And so I can work backwards from there and figure out, okay, I'm going to, I need to make X amount this month to cover expenses, including my paycheck, including our health insurance. And one of those is really high and one of those is pretty low. You can guess which is which. Um, But, and then I can figure out, okay, well, I can make 
15 little three inch pieces and I can make three seven inch pieces and I can maybe make one like or I can maybe finish one bigger works that pieces that I've had in the works for a long time and and then I can add up those numbers and kind of see where I'm how close or how far away I am from that break-even amount and that's how I, I'm usually thinking about just meeting my expenses not really about making money per se if that makes sense that makes perfect sense, especially, uh, I feel like this is such an unfortunate thing to be common. Well, I know for a fact, it's an unfortunate thing that is common. But I think oftentimes, the thing that artists forget about the most is paying ourselves for our time and our labor. And I am constantly uh, <laughs> talking to friends about it. And they're like, yeah, I mean, you get to like do your own business, you get to work from home all the time, you get to relax, it's great. I'm like, I don't really pay myself. That's why I don't hang out because I don't have the money to go out. Like I really, (laughs) the business basically breaks even. And then I'm otherwise trying to like save for future projects that require money. I'm trying to save for future seasons that I know are going to be slow. I'm trying to save for (laughs) a house one day. I'm trying to pay off my credit card. It's like all of these things we have to remember to factor into pricing our work, especially if we are our own bosses, like we set our own rates. So we are responsible to set rates that actually make sense for our expenses and our lives. And I think that we often feel like art is almost meant to be a sacrifice, but it's, it's not. And that's a really gross thing that I think we have to unlearn and hopefully shift, shift the attitude of valuing art and not seeing it as being expensive, but being worth every damn penny. (laughs) Yeah. Well, and something that I noticed over the years, so just to go back really quickly to, to Casey Zavaglia's advice, much needed and much appreciated and sort of like life changing advice, like raise your prices. And I, so I started doing some research about that and, and you, you know, you have to be, I think mindful of how you're going to approach a price jump because you've already established a certain expectation with your community at the prices that you have now. So you need to, I think I try to be respectful of that community when I make an adjustment. Um, So that adjustment has to happen for me. It happened over time to where each update that I sold out everything right away was like, okay, next time I'm going to add 10% to the price. And eventually what happened was that I sort of hit a plateau where I would release a collection of work and maybe 70% would sell out rapidly and the other 30% would sort of hang out in the shop, which is great because that 70% is already much higher, a much higher sort of take-home amount than the 100% was before all the price adjustments. And I now have that 30% of items left in my shop so that when people visit sarahkbenning.com, they're not met with a wall of sold out, sold out, sold out, sold out all -hmm. the time. Um, Even if they don't want what's available, there is something available. And I think psychologically, that's a really important thing to have people see and know that you have stuff and, and, you know, know that you're you're operating and that's kind of with our kit situation right now that's where I feel like we're losing people you know because someone's going to check in twice if we're extremely lucky and on 
that second time, it's like, oh, it's still sold out. I guess she's not doing that anymore. So even though it's really exciting to sort of sell through something really fast, long-term business-wise, I think it's much better to aim for, you know, 60 or 70% selling through a collection and then having the rest like hang out. Because what I've found is that if I do an update and maybe three pieces are left in the shop after kind of the rush on the work is over, the next update, it's likely that one or two of those pieces is going to sell then. Um, yeah. So it's just a matter of being a little bit more patient with that. And I do realize that that's, you know, that too is kind of a privilege of my business being more established right now is that I can be patient and wait for that piece to sell. And I can be patient and price a piece for what I feel it's really worth because I'm not, because of how I've structured things, I'm not in the moment desperate for a sale. And like you said, Amanda, you know, planning for slow seasons in June, just to throw out a, a, an example, we came nowhere close to breaking even in June. Like, it was one of the worst months we've had in a long time. There are a lot of reasons for that. And there are things we probably could have done to make that different, but it didn't feel appropriate at the time. And so that was just something that we decided, you know what, we can, we can sit this out for a little bit and wait and, and let this, uh, let other things happen and um, give space for, for that stuff. And, you know, we'll be okay because we've planned for this and we've, you know, built, build in some cushion to the way we run our business. That's it for this half of the conversation. Tune in next week to listen to part two. That's it for this episode of the Beyond the Studio podcast. You can find show notes, references, and a brief summary of the episode over at our website, beyondthe.studio. While you're there, be sure to sign up for our mailing list to find out about upcoming guests, special announcements, and podcast giveaways. Can you, I'm stitching right now. Does the needle pulling through the fabric, is that coming through? Okay. No, not at all. And if- I love it. (laughs) If for some reason it does come through, it will just add that level of ASMR that we needed. And there it is. Okay.